Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about traps. Uh, I think I've mentioned this in some Weird House Cinema episodes, but for some reason, ever since I was a little kid, I have always loved movie scenes where the protagonists build a trap to use against the villain or the monster. I remember uh, like Home Alone when I was a little kid, that, that that whole sequence was great. It sort of expands to fill my whole childhood impression of what the movie was. And uh, <laughs> if you go back and watch it as an adult, it's kind of weird that it's only like 15 or 20 minutes of the runtime. In, in Home Alone? Yeah. 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 It does seem like that. I mean, that's the main thing I remember. Yeah. The, yeah, the yeah. traps, the traps and, uh, and certainly people feel certain nostalgia for them. Uh, <laughs> oh, I mean, the, my heart swells at the thought of a, a nail going into Daniel Stern's foot. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but also, yeah, I remember other ones like, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger builds a bunch of traps in predator. Um, uh, and, but, but like, this wasn't just when I was a kid, I, it still works on me. I remember there was a, sequence i just loved in the more recent uh, horror movie it follows where the characters build a trap for the monster oh yeah yeah that's right uh, they, they that is very they have a very, very much a kind of uh, home alone's uh, uh, setup that they do there of course it's not only the the heroes that that have traps i always love a good villain trap as well especially the trap door um mm. uh, tra- trap door sequence is always a lot of fun um uh, you know, be it something like in uh, in Lynn Labyrinth, I love the the, the trap when the trap door uh, springs uh, mm. on our hero and that. But uh, uh, actually, tomorrow's Weird House Cinema also has a fun trap door sequence. Uh, oh and, yeah, yeah. So look forward to that. Well, well yeah. On the side of uh, the the protagonists getting through traps set for them, uh, another one of my favorite movie sequences as a child was the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh yes, when, uh, when Indy's going through all the traps, something about it is just like deep in the brain. It, it's very satisfying. Wall to wall traps. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's that's a great sequence as well. Um, and, and all of these are great sequences, in spite of the fact that. When you when you can when you really think long and hard about any of these scenarios, uh, you know the, the cracks definitely show. Uh, would uh-huh. would all of these traps still be working in this uh, ancient ruin that Indiana Jones <laughs> finds himself in? Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a hard argument to make there, right? Uh, how, how did the spring trap operate by you sticking your hand through a shaft of light when it was right. apparently made like thousands of years ago? <laughs> Yeah, or you know, if it's Duke and Predator, like how does he, um, how does he make this super powerful compound bow uh, just in the space of a few hours on an afternoon in the jungle? Uh, that's just standard survival training. I mean. <laughs> and, and all these other various Ewok traps that he builds. Didn't didn't you go to that camp? <laughs> Did I build a bow like that at a cat camp? No. <laughs> I think we sharpen sticks. Uh, you know that would be that, that would be more believable, right? He makes a spear, yeah, to battle. Uh, that's most of the way there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think it probably speaks volumes for humans to be you know to be saying all of this about traps and about, especially about you know loving these the cinematic treatments of traps because because what are traps ultimately? Very broadly speaking, they're clever tactical and or technological innovations that level the playing field against predators, against prey, and even against fellow humans. Traps are the sort of things that humans have been up to since prehistory. So, of course, we love traps. And, of course, we admire things like traps uh, that we find in other species. Right. So, today, we're going to be focusing on some allegations of 
insects with the ability to build traps, specifically ants that do things that may in fact be uh, biological evolutions that allow them to trap prey. Uh, now, there are some other animals that I think we could say more more clearly and, and famously create traps. I think the obvious uh, example here would be spiders. Yes. Yeah. Spiders are the trap builders par excellence. Uh, you know, there are no finer trap builders in the animal kingdom. Maybe you could make a case for human beings. Um, but personally, uh, I'm, I'm not in favor of that. I think, you know, well, web building <laughs> spiders especially are just such highly evolved trap masters. Every detail of their anatomy and behavior enhances their trapping ability. And the trap is very much an extension of their own bodies in so many ways. Uh, and we, we've covered this and we've covered spiders in general numerous times in the show before. And we'll likely keep coming back to them. But yeah, the, the spider... The spider is the, the trap maker. There's nothing else that the spider really does. Um, and, and anything else it does, uh, the web-building spider is going to do in close proximity to the web that it has built. Yeah. Uh, another example that's come up before, I think in our Sarlacc episodes, was the antlion. Yes, yeah. Uh, this is a, a case where we have predatory larvae that in some species of antlion anyway, set up at the bottom of sand pits that they dig, ready to lash out at anything that uh, disturbs their grains and you know, ventures down into the trap. Um, uh, again, not all antlion species dig trap pits, but some of the most famous ones do. I remember one of the great things we learned about the antlion was that like you say, the it is the ones that make traps. It is just the larval period of their lifespan, their life cycle mm -hmm. that they make the traps. Then they later metamorphose into uh, into another form. Uh, but while they're in that larval stage, I think at least some of them never poop. <laughs> oh so yeah, yeah. Ca catching ants and eating them and just like waiting. And it's like if you had to wait until you turned eighteen to poop. <laughs> We'll go back and listen to that Sarlacc episode if you'd like to hear more about the antlion. Uh, there's also um, the species of, uh, of creature known as the worm lion, and this is this is uh, un unrelated to the antlion. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, convergent evolution that ends up utilizing largely the exact same method again uh, when it's a larva. Uh, though the pit itself, in this case, is generated via a slightly different method. Uh, so it, it digs its pit in a, in a slightly different uh, method, but it, it still consumes its prey in the same manner. But for me, at least, if you ask me to make a list of non-human animals that make traps, I could obviously go spiders. I would have thought of the antlion, mm -hmm. uh, maybe by association the worm lion. But there, uh, before I was reading up for this episode, I think I would have drawn a blank. I, I, I wouldn't know what to go to next. Yeah, and part of it comes down to just how are you going to, def going to define a trap. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, here's, here's an interesting potential example uh, we can discuss uh, that, that I read, across, read, read about when I was reading uh, Gilbert uh, Waldbauer's How Not to Be Eaten. Uh, which, is a, which is largely about insects. Uh, but there's a part where the author is discussing the burrowing owl. So these are small birds native to the Great Plains in southern Florida. Um, I, th I think they're about the size of a robin. I'm to understand they're, you know, they're small little, little guys. Uh, mm -hmm. But they, uh, they, they make their home in burrows that they dig themselves. And 
one of the interesting things that they do in addition to this, if this wasn't uh, you know <laughs> interesting enough already, is the burrowing owl will scatter horse or cow dung around the entrance to their burrows. And Whoa. in you know times before European contact, this would have probably been bison dung. Uh-huh. And the dung does seem to be important uh, because if if researchers remove the dung from the vicinity, the birds will just the bird will just go out and obtain more dung and place it in the vicinity. Uh, so it's it seems to be doing this intentionally. Uh, the theory is that they place the dung to bait dung beetles. Uh, so they put the dung out, dung beetles come, and indeed, uh, uh, researchers have been able to tell that the owls eat ten times more dung beetles than usual when the dung is out. Ah, well, this will, in fact, mirror one of the two examples of, of potential ant uh, trap making that I want to talk about later. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, but, but this is a great example. It's certainly clever. I, I, I like it. But it kind of forces us to ask the question of a trap. Like, what is a trap? Is it merely baiting a trap? Mm-hmm. Um, it is, well, th- that know, is a good question, yeah. Because, and um, how much does the trap structure have to be separate from your body in order to right. count as a as a constructed trap? And how much does it have to? How much work does it have to do for you? Yeah, and at what point does an animal's behavior? stop being a trap and just become sneaky behavior, sneaky tactics, mm-hmm. or or simply uh, ambush predation. Because obviously there are plenty of examples of ambush predators on land and in the sea. And these include everything from, uh, well, the trapdoor spider, for one, which I think is is definitely a case of, uh, of trap building because it's, it's an ambush predator, uh, but it builds a silk-hinged trapdoor to aid in those ambushes. Right. So the trapdoor hides it. I think you could count that as like infrastructure necessary to constitute a trap. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, de- yeah, definitely with the trapdoor spider. Uh, but then you also have just various camouflage predators, including things like frogfish, praying mantises, chameleons, and more, which are not building anything. They're not altering their environment, but they've evolved to look like a part of their environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have, the, you know, often tremendous abilities of camouflage that enable them to quickly ambush something that they want to eat. Okay, that probably doesn't, that doesn't really seem like a trap to me because no. they, they're just evolved to look that way and they, they do the actual hunting themselves. Right. And then, of course, you have various birds and cats and big cats even uh, that are just very stealthy, uh, that are just very good at not uh, being observed by the things they want to kill. So I was uh, reading a little bit about this in Douglas J. Imlin's uh, excellent book, Animal Weapons, that I've referenced on the show before. And he points out that creatures such as this generally depend on, quote, a quick strike weapon that immediately incapacitates its victim. And of course, these bioweapons might be enhanced by special features such as, in various deep sea ambush predators, a bioluminescent lure, which again is not something they have created or engineered out of their environment, but it is a part of their body. So when we come back to this idea that, well, it needs to be something that's built, it needs to be something that's engineered or, or just a hole dug in the, in the ground even, um, mm-hmm. we come back to that same question, well, why don't we find more of this. And I actually found an interesting paper title out there, Why Are Pitfall Traps So Rare in the Natural World? by G.D. Ruxton and M.H. Hansel. And it appeared in Evolutionary Ecology in 2009. Mm, Interesting question. Yeah, so the authors here point out that in order to lay a trap, you generally need either advanced cognitive powers, as with humans, obviously, Mm -hmm. 
or you need specialist self-secreted materials, as with spiders and caddisfly larvae, um, thing, uh, which uh, the caddisfly larvae use that their, their uh, secretions to create a net-like, even meshed trap, uh, like a silk um, uh, trap in order to uh, you know, like filter catch uh, uh, their prey. That makes sense. So humans can create all kinds of traps because we have, you know, cognitive powers that allow us to imagine what could be done, how, you know, other materials in the environment could be repurposed to uh, to passively in- ensnare or kill prey animals and spiders and stuff. That's just the trap you could almost say is a part of their body, even though the web is a built thing. They are evolved to secrete the silk for the web out of their bodies and they have very instinctually driven behaviors for how they extrude that silk, where, and in what patterns. Right. So Ruxton and Hansel here uh, ultimately uh, point out that, okay, they, we have the ant lion, though, and, of course, the, the, the worm lion. Uh, these are exceptions to the rule. Um, they make use of a pitfall trap. And so the authors ask, why is this basic tactic not more common in the animal world. How hard is it, after all, to dig a hole? They're easy, they're cheap, um, and yet you don't see this technique used by virtually anything outside of, of some antlions and worm lions. Um, apparently, the lack of more pitfall traps in nature was something of a mystery, or in, and remains something of a mystery. Yeah, that that is interesting. Okay, so I it took me a second to get the distinction they're making, but they're saying that the antlion and the worm lion would be kind of an outlier because they they don't have complex intelligence and imagination like humans, so they're not inventing traps with cognitive powers, uh, but they also don't secrete a material that constitutes the basis of the trap like a spider. They're literally just building a trap out of the dead environment around of them by digging a conically shaped hole in such a pattern that that ants get stuck in it when they fall down the side. Uh, right. But and and why is that so rare? Because it would seem like that that should be a strategy that lots of animals could easily employ. Right. Yeah. Again, uh, holes are ultimately easy to make, uh, low energy. Why not? Why 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 is why is this cat not making a hole and using that as part of its hunting tactics? So what 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 are their thoughts on this? Like why would why wouldn't we see this more often? Well, they uh, they propose two speculative reasons for the lack of pitfall traps in nature. The first one is pitfall traps may require a specialist microhabitat. In other words, you can't do this just anywhere. Conditions have to be just right, uh, such as, you know, we can look to the ant lions. They have to be kind of sandy conditions. You know, you have to have that kind of granular environment. Um, oh, so yeah. it's the kind of tactic that uh, a, a potential trap builder would not necessarily be able to employ all over the place. You would have to depend on, a, on again, on a specialist microhabitat. I think I recall from our Sarlacc episode where we had a segment about the antlion that they needed the grains of soil to be of a particular size, like the, the sandy grains uh, above or below a certain diameter threshold would not work very well for, for making the traps. Yeah, yeah. Now, their second point is that with the antlion in particular, the trap targets small prey. And since they may be more functionally tied to their trap than spiders are, traps of this nature could serve as like basically a major bullseye for potential predators. And indeed, the main predators of antlions and worm lions are birds who know what to look for. That's a really good point. So by building a trap and then sitting in it and waiting for your prey to fall in, you are also usually going to be making a structure that's, that makes it easy for things that want to eat you to, to find where you are. You know, they don't have to look too hard because you've made a big hole in the ground. 
Right. And, uh, and spiders just have a little more leeway with the situation. Now, I should point out, Hansel also wrote an entire book, which I'm going to reference here in a minute. He spends a lot of time in that book talking about spiders and how, you know, so, sometimes spider webs are very visible uh, and other times uh, they are not and how that plays into the, uh, you know, the ultimate kind of complex relationship between spiders and, uh, and the creatures that would eat spiders. Um, mm. But uh, but just thinking about this as the trap uh, being this uh, conspicuous thing, this we actually see this in a lot of our fantastic trap fiction. You know that moment when the target of the clever cinematic trap, um, especially if it's laid by the protagonists, uh, the uh, the enemy almost sets it off, right? Like the predator almost triggers the trip line you've prepared, but then. Uh, something happens, right? The uh, uh, the monster deduces that the trap is there, or it suspects that something is a little off. Oh, and maybe even the the presence of a trap is how the hero knows that they have stumbled across the bad guy's hideout. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it even reminds me a bit of our recent Weird House selection, The Lift. This was the Killer <laughs> Elevator movie. Uh, the Killer Elevator in this, or I guess you, or more specifically, the weird bio brain that's been installed in the elevator shaft to power <laughs> these elevators uh-huh. it's kind of an obligate trap predator um but it's so tied to that environment that it it's a little tricky like it, it's not able to pull off every kill and it's eventually destroyed by prey that is too clever for it brilliant analogy this this is true the killer elevator is an obligate trap predator uh, I, I also have to point out, speaking of the Sarlacc, is that recent uh, Mandalorian episodes have also, uh, you know, sort of played with this idea. Yeah, yeah, the mighty Sarlacc, the Sarlacc's pretty impressive, but they make it clear that even these great trap predators can be consumed by the mighty crate dragon that lives in the, the deserts of Tatooine. Uh, so n- knowing you're there, uh, being, you know, this identifiable organism in the sand, uh, that can have a huge downside to it. Now, I was trying to think of counterpoints to the idea that, okay, so uh, sitting at the bottom of a pitfall trap and waiting for prey to fall into you and then eating that, that makes you vulnerable to uh, to predators that want to find you. Well, uh, well, what if you just make pitfall traps and then you go away and then you, you know, leave them there and then come back like a human hunter might do, you know, leave a trap out in the woods and then come and see what it collected, lobster traps or something. Uh, but, but I can see downsides to that as well, because if it's just a pit trap, you could imagine that, well, something might fall in there, but then something else might eat it before you get to it. Um, right. So, or it might, you know, if you have to make these all over the place, you might spend a lot of energy going around from one to the other. So is that really all that much better than just hunting? Well, and then it kind of comes back to this idea that, that the, the trap laid by an animal, especially, um, still requires the lethal mechanism. And in the case oh, of the antlion, right. the lethal, lethal mechanism is itself. It is still essentially uh, uh, an ambush predator. Uh, like, like, again, like Emlyn says, quote, a quick strike weapon that immediately incapacitates its victim. Uh, yeah, that, I can't believe I didn't think of that. That's, of course, a good point. You have to find a way to kill the prey. Right. So uh, I mentioned that, that Hensel has a, has a whole book uh, that deals with, with, with some of this a little bit, but just sort of the broader picture of animals building things. Uh, it's titled Animal Architecture. And I was reading through this a bit. Uh, he contends that we're not looking at traps when we're looking at cases of, a, of an animal baiting another uh, animal because traps are a kind of subset of animal architecture, an engineered space that aids in capture. Okay, so by his metric here, 
what the burrowing owl does by by leaving dung out around its nest and having this attract insects to it, that would not count as a trap because it is not a structure that in any way aids in capture. It just attracts prey to a site. Oh, by the way, I want to also, speak, speaking of the burrowing owl again, I want to uh, uh, throw in that that while uh, some burrowing owls do build their own burrows, they're also burrowing owls that uh, acquire the burrows of other creatures. Mm. Uh, anyway, I, I want to read this quote from Hansel here. Uh, I, I think he, he puts it rather well uh, concerning the animal architecture and traps. Quote, whereas a house can just be a barrier between the builder and the outside world, a trap has a dynamic relationship between itself and the prey. The prey needs to approach the trap in a particular orientation to it and then needs to be restrained by it. Traps are therefore more complex than homes and need to be more precisely engineered. And then he goes on to point out that, quote, among the vertebrates, trap builders were apparently absent until the recent history of man. Now, he cites uh, human mental capacity once more for the construction of such traps, noting, quote, virtually all non-human trap builders use self-secreted materials, and the capture principle they adopt is the net. Hmm. The exceptions are simple in design and operation as well as rare. And then he goes on to specifically mention ant lions, uh, worm lions, uh, and uh, larval diptera. But anyway, a large takeaway here is that trap building is not as widespread in the animal kingdom as you might expect. Humans make a lot of traps. There are some very specialized animals, especially some invertebrates that use traps uh, made of materials that they secrete from their own bodies. But generally, trap building is not a very widespread hunting strategy uh, among animals of planet Earth. In which case, it would be very interesting to find examples of animals such as ants that make traps in order to get their nutrition. And I guess that's a good segue to uh, what I uh, to the, the main focus of today's episode, which was a couple of examples I came across of ants that do something that could be interpreted as building traps as a hunting strategy. Yeah, and it, I mean, it would make sense that we might find something like this in the ant world because ants are masters of uh, construction, they are, uh, they alter their environment. Uh, they're capable of uh, of practicing um, agriculture. Uh, they, they, as we've discussed in previous episodes of the show, uh, they engage in complex conflicts that we uh, may might well compare to warfare. They can solve problems. Uh, they're, I mean, you, the, the yeah. list goes on and on. Ants uh, are amazing. Um, uh, as, uh, as of course, as uh, as the, the now late E.O. Wilson. Uh, was was fond of reminding us, um, you know, ants are, are incredible creatures uh, that we you know we've covered them numerous times on the show before. We're covering today, and I'm sure we'll cover them again. Exactly. So the first example I want to talk about, I I found so interesting, and this one also has some uh, interesting differences in interpretations I came across. But just to to start with the basic report. Uh, I was reading about this in a paper published in Nature in the year 2005 by uh, Alain de Jean, Pascal Jean Solano, Julian Irolet, uh Bruno Corbara, and Jerome Orivel, called Arboreal Ants Build Traps to Capture Prey. Uh, and also as a supplement to uh, the paper in Nature, I was reading a summary feature that was also in Nature by uh, Narelle Towie, published in April 2005, called uh, Amazonian Ants Ambush Prey. So here's the deal. There's a plant in the Amazon called Hertella physophora, 
or uh, maybe Physophora, P-H-Y-S-O-P-H-O-R-A. Uh, I'm going to try to say Physophora. So these uh, Hirtella plants, plants in this genus, are woody trees or shrubs. I've seen them called both trees and shrubs, but they're, if you're trying to picture them as a tree, you should be imagining a small tree. So woody stems, but not like, you know, sky high. Mm-hmm. Uh, plants in this genus are found in the tropics across multiple continents, but their diversity is concentrated around the Amazon. And they typically have flowers that are pollinated by butterflies. And this one species in particular, Hirtella physophora, is what the authors of the paper call an ant plant. This is a plant species that is known to have a a specific biological relationship with a species of ant. Uh, And these can be found uh, throughout the world. There there are very uh, common mutualisms or various kinds of symbiotic relationships between ant colonies and the trees or plants they inhabit. Now, this plant in particular has a relationship with the arboreal ant Alomerus decimarticulatus, and they live on the body of the plant, forming colony centers in what the authors of the paper call leaf pouches. They're these little bulb-looking things that uh, can usually be found at the places where the branches split into leaves. Uh, they look like these – it's kind of hard to describe them. They're just these little like uh, green lobes or orbs, and apparently the ants like to get inside those and make nests in there. Now, already one of the things that's, that I'm reminded of is the idea of like a specialist microhabitat. And if you have a situation where a plant is is the, the, the home to the ants, that they have this, uh, this, this ant-plant relationship in place – um, you know, the, the plant itself is kind of the environment. It's kind of the microhabitat that the, the ant is uh, the, the master of. Uh, that's exactly right. But the interesting thing is, of course, ants being builders, some mm-hmm. ants will form complex, you know, dugout colonies in the ground or, or other types of uh, interesting engineered environments. They can also engineer the microhabitat of the surface of a plant. Mm. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this case. So, uh, oh, and I should say, that the colonies that were looked at in this 2005 paper were from uh, French Guyana in in northern South America. Uh, But so what you find in these plants that are occupied by their uh, their familiar ant species is that along the stems of the host plant, the ants will build what the authors of this paper call galleried structures, or sometimes they just say galleries. It's kind of hard to describe exactly what this is, but Imagine a kind of platform built out over the surface of the stem of the plant, and it's a platform that the ants can crawl underneath. And then this platform has a kind of spongy texture, almost as if it's or honeycomb texture. It's lined with all these holes in the platform that the ants can crawl in and out through. Generally, generally the holes are just slightly larger than the diameter of one of the worker ants' heads. So there are these platforms raised above the stem of the plant. Ants crawl underneath them, but then crawl up and, uh, up and down, in and out, through the holes in the platform. Yeah, it is kind of difficult to describe it because it is so different from something that that humans would, for the most part, build. You know, be, um, uh, you know, v- by virtue of the ants uh, being far more mobile and uh, mm-hmm. sort of living in a in a more three dimensional space than human beings tend to. 
by the way, these are great to look up, probably unless you suffer from tryptophobia, in which yeah. case, stay far away. Yeah, if you're, if you're freaked out by things like uh, lotus pods uh, and, uh, and random holes and things, uh, yeah, you might, you might want to uh, avoid this particular Google image search. Now, how do the ants build these galleries? Well, they apparently make them by cutting off trichomes from the stems of the plant. Trichomes is a word that comes from the Greek word for hairs. These are small little fibery appendages that poke out from the surface of a plant. You've probably seen lots of plants before that have little hairy things all over the stem or the leaves. Those are trichomes, and they do look a lot like hairs. So the worker ants will move along the stem of a uh, of a Hirtella physophora plant, clearing away the trichomes. And then uh, just to read from the language used in the paper here, quote, Then, using uncut trichomes as pillars, they build the gallery's vault by binding cut trichomes together with a compound that they regurgitate. Later, this structure is reinforced by the mycelium of a complex of sooty mold species that has been manipulated by the ants. Fungal growth starts around the holes and then spreads rapidly to the rest of the structure. Uh, so I think you, you heard that right. So these ants build their galleries uh, along the stem of the plant by cutting the hairs off of the plant where they live then using those hairs as building materials along with their own barf as a kind of mortar, and then holding everything together by seeding it with mold or fungus that they farm. So they they have a kind of agricultural project for farming fungal rebar that they use to reinforce the galleries that they build. And in quotes given to the press, I've seen the authors of this study compare this composite material to fiberglass. Wow. Yeah, that does seem like a good comparison. Oh, man. I mean, it's just so amazing that it's not just like this physical um, uh, act, but they're actually yeah, seeding it with, uh, uh, with this, uh, this mold. Oh, man. They're, kind, they're, they're building it, but they're also kind of growing it. Uh, it it's it's yeah. pretty amazing. And, and they tend to it as it grows. So I wanted to read another section uh, from the study where they talk about the evidence that the ants are actively tending the the fungus as it reinforces these structures. They say, quote, We noted that the stems of 34 young seedlings, which had not yet developed leaf pouches, did not bear fungus. Nine saplings raised in a greenhouse in the absence of alomerus, that's the, the, the ants, developed leaf pouches but never bore fungus. However, 15 saplings raised in the presence of ants bore mycelia, whose development was limited to the galleries. When we eliminated the associated ants from five of the 15, the fungus on the galleries grew into a disorganized structure, and none of the nine new stems that developed bore any fungus at all. Okay, so hmm. the fungus is only showing up on the plant when the ants are there on the plant. And if you take the ants away from the plant after they've been using the fungus to reinforce their, their galleries, the, the fungus kind of grows out of control in, in what they call a disorganized structure. But with the ants still there, it stays nice and tightly formed around the holes in the galleries. Hmm. So they're, they're tending their garden. It's like a living – I don't know. It's like if you had to have maintenance workers constantly sort of uh, gardening and tending to the fungus that held up your skyscrapers. Wow. 
But, but, but uh, here's where we start getting to the trapping. So the authors of this study say that they, they notice that sometimes larger insects would become immobilized on the surface of the galleries. So you got these, these spongy surfaces, ants crawling underneath them, and sometimes like a locust or a butterfly, some bigger insect lands on the gallery, and then it gets stuck. What's going on here? Well, they started to investigate whether the galleries could be functioning as a type of trap. And here's what they say about how the ambush works. Quote, our observations revealed that Alomiris workers hide in the galleries with their heads just under the holes, mandibles wide open, seemingly waiting for an insect to land. To kill the insect, they grasp its free legs, antennae, or wings, and move in and out of the holes in opposite directions until the prey is progressively stretched against the gallery and swarms of workers can sting it. The ants then slide the prey over the top of the gallery, again moving in and out of the holes, but this time in the same direction. They move it slowly towards a leaf pouch where they carve it up. Uh, oh, and then once they get to one of these population centers of the colony, you know, these, these nest, sti uh, nest sites in the leaf pouches, uh, they, they tend to feed bits of protein from the insect to their young. Mm. Well, th yeah, this is uh, amazing and suitably you know, brutal for the world of ants. Uh, so this, this, this larger creature uh, lands or walks on to the structure. Uh, you know, they're reaching out of holes to pull it straight down, and then they, uh, they transfer it to a place where they can carve it up. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's no sentimentality in the world <laughs> of ants. They're just like, okay, this is edible. It's time to get to butchering. <laughs> But anyway, th these observations reveal this, this fascinating three-way interaction between the plant, the fungus, and the ant, all sort mm -hmm. of uh, living together in this, this, this uh, three-way life cycle, essentially, uh, that apparently serves the purpose of creating a trap to get larger insects. Well, you know, these t oh, I, I don't think I mentioned, but uh, the Alamiris uh, decimarticulatus ants are very small. It's a, it's a structure that allows these tiny ants, apparently, to capture, kill, and butcher much, much larger prey. Mm. All right. And, of course, the, the plant out of all of this gets some slight mutilation from the ants, but is protected from larger insects that would otherwise uh, gnaw on it and do more harm to it than just you know, creating an interesting lattice work out of its body. Presumably. I mean, I, I think often there is such a relationship going on. The insect also provides a benefit to the plant somehow, uh, though in the sources I was reading, it wasn't clear to me exactly if it's known what what the major benefit provided by the ants is. But I would guess that's right, that they're yeah. probably protecting the plant from from uh, herbivore, large herbivore insects that would chew its leaves down or something. But I don't know for sure. I got to admit right. that. Right. And then, of course, we also have to, to, to always realize that in the natural world, the line between parasitism and, and symbiosis is sometimes uh, a bit thin. Uh, these mm -hmm. are not relationships that are governed by strict contracts. And right. So you might see a little bit of push and pull um, uh -huh. uh, over the course of ev evolutionary history. Yeah. Ants will take whatever they can get. You're right. So yeah, be careful about entering into a bargain with, uh, uh, with, with the ants. Uh, but on the other side of all this, I wanted to come back on it because I found a book where the trap interpretation of these structures has been challenged. Uh, and in fact, this book was by somebody who's come up on, the epi uh, on I think, episodes we did about ants last year, uh, the biologist Mark W. Moffat. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so he has a book 
called Adventures Among Ants that was uh, that came out in 2010, University of California Press. And in this book, I found a section where Moffat argues that the trap interpretation of these structures built by Alamiris Decimarticulatus is in fact a misinterpretation. Mm. Now, I'm not sure he's right about this, but I do want to explain what he claims. So as a bit of background in, in the, the section of the book uh, directly preceding this, Moffat has been talking about his observations of, of various species of army ants on raiding parties to forage for food, uh, and also on defensive patrols to protect the colony and the raiding column from threats. And one of his observations in this in this preceding section is how difficult it is sometimes to tell the difference between these two behaviors and how easily one bleeds into the other. So uh, according to, to Moffat, for most army ants, their defensive attacks on a creature that is perceived to be threatening the raiding column can quickly turn into a foraging raid in itself. So if the threat is killed, it is pretty much immediately chopped up into pieces and carried away as food. So it's kind of like if you imagine every monster movie ended with the heroes butchering and eating the monster after they finally <laughs> defeated it. Well, we do see that sometimes. Uh, in fact, that that occurs in The Mandalorian, but um, uh, in the case of the crate dragon. But um, but yeah, we should see more um, uh, more consumption of the dra- of the of dragons and monsters and so forth. Uh, use every part of the monster. Be responsible. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's you know, the, our, our humans are different than ants. I mean, ants are not going to let anything go to waste. Humans, after you fought a monster, you might just want to have nothing to do with it. Hmm. To each species their own. Uh, but anyway, so from here, Moffat moves on to describing the ant I've been talking about, Elamiris uh, decimarticulatus. And he's describing its living situation. Though one distinction he makes, I, I couldn't find out what was uh, what was the, the, the disconnect here. But he said, you remember how I said that the ants build these gallery structures out of trichomes cut from the plants, so little plant hairs mixed with their own regurgitation or vomit. And then, uh, and then lined with the mycelium of the fungus that they cultivate. Moffat describes it the same way, but he mentions feces rather than vomit. And I don't know who's right there. Uh, but anyway, Moffat gives a few reasons that he had doubts about the generally accepted interpretation of this structure as a trap, specifically as a trap. Because he says a trap implies that, for example – a locust landing on the ant gallery would not have landed there if it saw the ants. The trap would be performing the function of hiding the ants so you know they're hidden beneath the vault of the gallery so that the prey insect feels it's safe enough to land and then they jump out and grab it. Okay, this would be in keeping with, say, the trapdoor spider uh, would, would probably be a great example of this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's comparable. That that's how it would function as a trap. But Moffat writes that he thinks this is unlikely because he doubts that grasshoppers would really be able to notice the tiny workers of this ant species anyway, quote, particularly in mid-leap, <laughs> uh, or that they would be able to change course in mid-leap after noticing them. So he he was a little iffy on that. He's like I'm not sure that the trap would really serve much purpose if it's supposed to be hiding the ants from the prey animal, because these are, these are insects that are much larger than the ants anyway. Right. So he's saying, basically saying like, this might be, if this was a trap, which he doesn't think it is, uh, it would be a preposterous trap. 
uh, an unnecessary trap. And while, again, we love unnecessarily complex and preposterous traps in our cinema, uh, we're not talking about cinema here. We're talking about uh, evolution. Yeah, and ruthless were, efficiency. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, things need to be ruthlessly efficient. And if it's not ruthlessly efficient, uh, it is going to change or go away. But anyway, those are his suspicions. So he decided to put them to the test. Uh, so he tells a story of uh, that that he was studying uh, colonies of this ant in the wild in Ecuador, and he put together a test to interrogate the trap interpretation. So to read from uh, the section of Moffat's book where he describes this test, he says, "Quote: I hung a mosquito net over a plant with a thriving Alomeris colony." added a hundred grasshoppers and katydids, and sat inside for the next five mornings, an unusual case of using a mosquito net to keep insects in instead of out. Even after the grasshoppers settled down, they were indiscriminate in their movements, hopping from where the ants hid under the structures to where ants strolled in full view to where there were no ants at all. When they landed among the ants, even on the structures, they got away unhurt. Certainly, if the structures served as traps, they were inefficient ones. So he's saying in in his observations here, he's seeing very little correlation uh, between the structures and the hunting behaviors of the ants or the behaviors of the prey insects. So what purpose does he believe the galleries are serving? Well, he points out that the galleries tend to run along the stems of the tree, connecting each nest pouch to, to another nest pouch. And they, quote, contain a highway of workers commuting from nest to nest. And then he points out that other insects, including other ant species, do sometimes build various types of physical covers over their trails, which are generally interpreted to be defensive in nature. For example, some marauder and driver ants have been observed to build soil covers over their trails. So could that be what's going on in this case? Could these galleries that the ants build actually be defensive in nature? Uh, Another strike here. According to Moffat, he observed that the workers at his study site did not actually sit and wait at the holes in these galleries, as you might expect them to do if they were planning an ambush. Uh, He says that when conditions were normal, so like if the colony is not in an agitated state, things are just sort of going along normally, most of the gaps in the gallery structures were unoccupied. But, he says, this changed when there appeared to be some kind of threat to the colony. Quote, After a day of pulling grasshoppers from my hair, I noticed interlopers of another ant, a species of Phydoli, or big-headed ant, climbing the plant to pin down a wounded grasshopper missed by the Alamiris. Upon the arrival of the Phydoli ants, the Alamiris workers began to guard each of the several dozen entrances to their arcade, uh, and the arcade is what he's calling the things that the other authors called the galleries. Uh, the several dozen entrances to their arcade nearest the commotion caused by the intruders. These guards, aided by nestmates roaming the arcade surface, also caught and killed one Fidoli and carried it off. So, based on these observations, Moffat argues that the galleries are more likely defensive to protect trails of workers moving from one leaf pouch to the other, but that when something attacks or threatens the colony, the workers quickly shift their behavior from travel to defense, and then they occupy the holes and start biting violently at anything that comes near, and of course, if they are able to immobilize an attacker, or not necessarily an attacker, if they're able to immobilize whatever it is that put them on the defense, 
they immediately shift roles again and turn that threat into food and begin butchering it for the colony again to to cook the monster so to speak mm, so we we it might be better to think of these as defensive fortifications kind of like a to, to use like a medieval castle or fortress scenario it's kind of like the various uh crenellations and uh murder holes and uh and and, and arrow slits uh, except with the uh, with the, with the added point that in this case the occupants of the castle or fortress would eat those that they killed defending it. Right, Th- that's what Moffat argues. Uh, and so to to finish up his section, he says in the end, "quote In this way, the organization of a super organism." He's referring to ants there because I, I think you can make the argument that you know an ant colony might be best understood as one organism rather than many. It is a super organism composed of many different bodies. He says it, quote, can be more responsive than the tissues in a body. Trail-bound workers can shift seamlessly in their behavior from transport to protection to predation. It's as if one's liver could change function when the heart is incapacitated and pump blood. Mm. So uh, obviously I don't know who's right here. Moffat's book is more than 10 years old at this point, uh, And most of the things I read about uh, this ant species, Alamiris decimarticulatus, still describe the galleries as ambush traps. And, uh, and I'm not sure which interpretation is correct. But I do think either way, Moffat makes a very interesting point about the fluidity of function when it comes to ant behavior, how you know one moment's enemy is the next moment's lunch. Right, yeah, like the, like the ant colony is not just trying to do one thing. Um, it, it has a lot of objectives, and it has again this fluidity of function. Uh, whereas it's it's far easier to look at uh, at a web building spider and know what's up. You know, the 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 the, yeah. the, the web is its uh, is its purpose. The web is kind of its soul, uh, and there's no question <laughs> about why it constructed the web. I guess also this raises another question about what counts as a, quote, trap, Uh, because uh, assuming for a second that Moffat's interpretation is correct, I don't know it is, but if he's right that these structures are primarily to defend the ant trails, but then when when a threat presents itself, they turn around and use the holes in the galleries as murder holes and then eat whatever they can immobilize – does that count as a trap? Uh, like, how how specialized does a structure have to be for the purpose of catching prey in order to be thought of as a trap? Because you can imagine other examples where uh, an animal builds a structure that's primarily defensive in some way. It's more like the home from the example you talked about at the beginning in that book. You know, it's a barrier between you and the outside world, yet it has some kind of feature that, like, uh, another animal or something could get stuck on or some, you know, it somehow uh, allows you to sometimes opportunistically harvest from the structure and then eat from it. Uh, And does that count as a trap? Now, I haven't seen this movie in a very long time, but, um, but I I think there might be something comparable in Home Alone 2. Am I right? Oh, Lost in New York. The one with Tim Curry. Oh, what? Tim Curry's in that one? Oh, yeah. I think he plays a, he plays a snooty bellhop or something. Oh, okay. That sounds about right. Yeah. But yeah, I think the uh, uh, actually we were trying to figure what this out, uh, what this was, and Seth just chimed in to let us know. No, he, he was right. Um, the house where the, he builds the traps in Home Alone Two is a house that's like under renovation, so it already has features. Like all the traps don't have to be imagined from scratch. There are already features of the house. I don't remember exactly what they are, but there are things that are dangerous about it already. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
But I, I wanted to talk about my second example of ants potentially doing something that you could interpret as a trap. Okay. And this one also involves using foreign materials around the nest. So the second example was described in a paper that I was reading published in 2019 in the journal Ecological Entomology by uh, Ignacio Gomez, uh, Diogo Santiago, Ricardo Campos, and Geraldo uh, Vasconcelos. It was called, Why Do Phytoleoxiops Ants uh, Place Feathers Around Their Nests? And I also got some additional information from uh, reading an article about the study published in Scientific American by Joshua Rapp Learn in November 2019. Uh, but here's the deal. So there is this species of ant called Phydolioxiops. We, we were already talking about some Phydoli ants in the last example because the, the remember the Phydoli ants invaded the tree and then uh, they got kind of butchered by the, uh, by the Alamiris ants. But uh, Phydoli ants are a genus known as the big head ants. And uh, this species in particular, Phydolioxiops, is native to South American savannas. So these would be, you know, grasslands ants. Sometimes they appear to do something pretty weird. They collect feathers and place them around the entrance of their nests. So if you imagine the nest is buried, the entrance is basically a hole in the ground, and then you might just find feathers all around the hole, scattered around on the ground outside the hole. That's weird. It might make it look like the ants ate a live chicken or something, but that is not what happened. They appear to collect the feathers and put them there. Yeah, it kind of looks like there's a hole in the ground and like a, a, a bird was sucked down that hole. And this, this is the, <laughs> yeah. these are the cartoonish remnants of that uh, incident. I thought the same thing. Yeah, it was like mm, pop and then just puff of feathers. They settle around it. Uh, but no, that is not what has happened. The ants put the feathers there. Uh, strange. So this paper published in 2019 in, in ecological entomology, it claims that these feathers function as bait to attract prey animals, which then tumble into the nest entrance as if it were a pit trap. And the Scientific American article actually reports a bit of the background on the paper. It says that the study's first author, uh, Ignacio Gomez, is an ecologist at the uh, Federal University of Visosa in Brazil. And while walking around city parks and his college campus, he, he noticed examples of these ant nest entrances with feathers all around him. Apparently, this had been observed before, and also I, I was looking at another paper about this ant species, Phydolioxiops. Uh, this one was by Diego Assis et al. from 2021, and this paper said that in addition to feathers, there will sometimes be other objects around these uh, nest ent entrances, including shells, flower petals, and seeds. Mm. But this study in particular was was focusing on the feathers, and uh, so so he he noticed these feathers around the entrances, and he wondered what was the deal with this. Apparently, this had been observed before, and there were already a couple of untested hypotheses in the scientific literature about what the feathers were doing there. One idea was that the feathers could collect dew in arid regions, so they would help provide the ants with water in the mornings. And the other idea was that somehow the feathers could serve as lures attracting prey to the nest. 
And so the 2019 study tested both ideas. In one experiment, the researchers supplied the ant colonies with water-soaked cotton balls, so made sure they had access to plenty of water, but the ants in these cases preferred to collect feathers anyway. It did not seem like access to water played any role in, in their, uh, their desire to collect feathers, and this could be evidence that the feathers were not primarily for collecting water. But another test was designed to see if feathers scattered on the ground would attract prey. So they tested this with artificial traps that were made to resemble the, the nest entrances of these ants. And the team found that if you put out a trap and scatter feathers around it, for some reason, it will tend to trap more just sort of uh, uh, wanderers, you know, arthropods that are out on the ground than traps without feathers. And, so interesting question, why would they do that? Why would a, a hole in the ground surrounded by feathers get more bugs to fall into it? It's not known, but Gomez suggests that maybe it's something about the smell of the feathers, something about the visual appearance, maybe. Uh, a quote he gives to the Scientific American article, he says, just in general, soil insects are, quote, very curious. So maybe putting an unusual item around the entrance to the nest will just tend to get uh, wandering bugs to walk up to it and see if it's something of use to them. Hmm. But I think this would not count just as baiting the way uh, the, the way the burrowing owl, ex owl example would with the, uh, the cow dung or the bison dung, because in this case, it's not just to get the insects close to the nest in this case, the actual nest entrances, basically holes in the ground, function quite well as pit traps because once the prey insect falls in, they have difficulty climbing back out and the ants will rather quickly grab and butcher them. Now, this is clearly not the only way this ant species has to acquire prey. Uh, Phytoleoxiops do leave the nest to acquire prey. They forage like other ant species. But it's possible that using the nest as a pit trap and surrounding it with feathers as some kind of uh, evolved behavior for luring more insects into the hole, uh, that helps the colony supplement their diet during especially times of the year, such as the dry season in this region, when prey is more scarce, harder to come by. So they wouldn't be obligate trap builders. They would, they would be sort of they would have like a trap business on the side, I guess you would say. Yes. It is, if the trap interpretation is correct, it seems like this would be a supplemental role in, in getting extra food to them, uh, extra diet diversity, especially in times when they're, they're going to be getting less in their foraging or maybe when they're doing less foraging. Okay. Yeah. Because they're, you know, again, they're altering their immediate environment anyway. Um there, uh, so and and again, a hole like this uh, is not a huge energy investment. Um, the hole is already part of the nest. I mean, oh yeah, yeah already it, part of the yeah. nest. I guess the the question is uh, coming back to those uh, those reasons that were put forth um, uh, earlier that we don't see more pit traps. Uh, does this would this make the uh, the ant population more visible to potential predators? Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, may, maybe so, may, maybe not. Maybe maybe the animals that would be uh, interested in eating the ants already uh, would be able to detect their presence. And then again, also, the, the ants have more capabilities uh, than that one little larva at the bottom of a small pit. You know, we're not dealing with one organism. We're dealing with this um, uh, the, this entire colony of organisms that uh, that kind of behave as a single organism. Yeah, obviously, I don't know what all the, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of, of this evolutionary calculus would be, um, but uh, 
but yeah, it, it, there must be some reason why by having your ant nest as a as a pit trap in this environment for this ant is uh, is not such a it's not such a danger that it outweighs the benefit of getting some bugs to fall in as free meals. Hmm. But I also like this because it's like by house analogy, it's like it, if your entire house was just like below the ground and the entrance to the house was a spike pit trap, like a tiger trap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just waited for things to fall in and be like, oh, bonus, here's dinner. <laughs> and you, oh, and the, you had the lures, you had the feathers all around. I don't know what that would be in the human example. I, you put just cotton candy around the, you know, <laughs> around the trap that you come in through. Well, this is certainly another fascinating example. Um, yeah, and, and I, I love how both present the possibility of ants building traps, but since they are ants, like it's it's not that cut and dry. Like like yeah. ants have a complexity all their own, so you can't really look at them in the same way that you would look at a a single solitary spider, or or certainly even the you know the the human example. Like what we do with traps and how we think about traps is a rather different scenario compared to anything you know anything that we're seeing in in, in several of these animal examples. Yeah, well, I, I guess that does it for for ant traps on my end, but. Um... Yeah, well, well um, this was fun. Who knows what the future will hold? Perhaps there'll be more exciting studies uh, coming out of the, the the world of ant research. I mean, it's it's, it's highly possible. I mean, we're still we're still, oh, still yeah. making uh, significant discoveries about about ant species and what they're up to. There are frontiers of ants you couldn't even dream of. There are ant traps that you, we don't even know about yet because they haven't been sprung yeah. on us. When you fall into them, you go through the 2001 Stargate and you end <laughs> up in the in the room with the what's the, the French furniture. <laughs> you know, we've never watched an ant movie for Weird House Cinema. I wonder if, if we should at some point. Oh, um, I have for years been looking at the cover of a Blu-ray at Videodrome called Phase 4. It's oh. a picture of a hand with some ants. I know it involves ants. I don't know anything else. I guess the the question I would have, especially after talking about ants like this uh, again, is: Are we looking thinking about movies that that dis, that have a giant ant in them and have encounters with various giant ants, or is it truly about the ants as this kind of super organism? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I like know, the or, latter. Yeah, yeah. Though maybe having a giant sized ant is kind of a way through our fa- fantastic fiction that we think about super organisms. So it's kind of like, yes, the ants are small, but they, they work together and they're able to do great things. So we just think of like a giant ant. That's like just one way of, of, of contemplating what they're capable of. Mm, yeah. So the next time ant movies come back, if you're out there thinking about resurrecting the giant ant movie, consider having them like tear people apart. Uh, <laughs> things like that. Um, you know, crawling out of windows, pulling people taunt against the, uh, the sides of a building and then uh, mm-hmm. transferring them up to the rooftop and tearing them to pieces. Nice. Final processing. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode here, but we'd love to hear from everybody out there about traps, traps in movies, traps in the human world, traps in the animal world. Um, uh, is, there, is there some corner of this topic you'd like for us to explore more in the future? Let us know. We would love to hear from you. If you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, you will find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Listener mail on Mondays. Uh, short form artifact on Wednesdays. On Friday, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just look at a strange film. Uh, as always, you can also get to us rather quickly by going to stufftoblowyourmind.com. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.